entrepreneurship for the first time was an outlet for me to, to, to express myself and to fulfill my, my human potential. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Remo, a very well welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you for having me. You are a founder, investor, but also a blogger and content creator. And we want to learn everything about your personal story, how you also managed to transition from being an entrepreneur to becoming an investor. But I would like to start with your personal background first. Straight out of university, you co-founded your startup, Trigami, and you also started your own blog. So were you one of those people who always knew exactly what they wanted to do in their lives? Yeah, so actually I started my first company uh, right after high school. So I really couldn't wait. <laughs> and, uh, but I am a person that really, I think I don't know what I, what I want. I, I knew what I didn't want. So I, I never wanted a regular job. I never wanted to be like a slave to anything or anyone. Mm -hmm. uh, so I knew I wanted to be self-sufficient. Uh, but um, I, I still have the feeling that I don't know what I really want. So, so uh, I feel that I'm uh, on a constant search. And I really love the Steve Jobs' uh, commencement speech where he said that uh, you can't connect the dots by looking forward. You can only connect the dots by looking backwards. And that concept really speaks to me a lot. So you always went with, you, you go not for what you don't want to do, obviously, and then just try out other things to find your own path. That's how it's been like so far. Right. So I'm not the lucky one that always knew he wanted to be an astronaut or whatever and just right. went for it. So I'm constantly searching. And I think that the search is, is, a, is, is a way in itself. Absolutely. And, you know, you're also active as an entrepreneur. And I just wonder, where does that entrepreneurial motivation or spirit come from? Did you have any entrepreneurs in your family or where does that spirit come from to be entrepreneurial active? Yes, I think my, my father always worked for himself. So he always had his businesses, his projects. I think that certainly helps to, to uh, see that as your kid, as a kid, mm -hmm. that your father doesn't uh, have a job, doesn't have a boss. I think that influenced me subconsciously. But uh, for me, I think I, I always was very motivated by freedom. I think uh, freedom is my main motivator and also self-expression. I always wanted to find a way to express myself. I never was an artist. I never was into music. And entrepreneurship for the first time was an outlet for me to, to, to express myself and to fulfill my, my human potential. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's what motivated me. And why is freedom so important to you? What, what, what's like so appealing to you about freedom that this is one of your key drivers? Hmm, good question. I, I really don't know. <laughs> it's just something I, that really speaks to you. Yeah, I, I think I want to be, maybe it's deep down, it's always like fear or uncertainty, maybe deep down psychologically, but uh, no, I, I really want to be in charge. I want to be in control as much as I can for my whole life, for, for my own life, etc. Um, so yeah, it just never spoke to me to like go to a job uh, nine to five and just have four weeks of vacation and like the regular life. It, it never spoke to me. So uh, I always wanted to find something else, something different. And uh, yeah, that's why I became an entrepreneur. Maybe that can also be linked to the self-expression, right? You really mm -hmm. want to live your life on your own terms. So freedom is crucial to make that happen. Yeah, I think so. I think so. So so in the beginning, I think freedom was was the main motivator, but but... 
as time passes, I think self-expression became more more important. So for me right now, self-expression actually is the most important thing to to really um, yeah make a make a contribution to try to be useful to the world and and to learn to always learn. Uh, these these have become very important values for me. It's interesting. I would have probably expected that the other way around that you first <laughs> focus on the self-expression and then want to focus on freedom. Why the opposite? I don't know. It just happens like that. <laughs> okay, so probably you first have to gain the freedom to then be fully able to self-express yourself. Is that a fair take? Yeah, maybe, 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 maybe it's that. But but I think freedom, of course, it also has to do with financial freedom because right. with, without the financial backing, you can't have like yeah. real modern freedom in in our world. So so I think in the beginning. I was motivated by by financial freedom. I wanted to achieve that. I wanted to find a shortcut to it, and I felt like entrepreneurship would would be a great uh, a great uh, start at that. Absolutely. So let's dive into your entrepreneurial career. As we mentioned, you started your first startup, Trigami, right out of university. It was an influencer marketing agency, and you started that company in two thousand and six. Why was the timing right in that year to actually start your own company? Yeah, so for me personally, I think the timing was was right because I really just had to start something. Even the three years to my bachelor's was really very long for me. Uh, yeah, I was already running my first business since I was 19. I, I was running that through university. We were doing different kinds of projects and, and I really wanted to have like a real startup. And for the business idea itself, I think uh, if I'm honest, I think it probably was a few years too early because yeah, social media was just getting started. The market was very small. Companies uh, had no idea what it was, why, why they needed, needed it for their marketing. Right. So I think the business idea was too early, but for me personally, I just had to get out there and, and start something. And at one point I, I thought about doing a master's in St. Gallen in entrepreneurship. But then it, it it just felt wrong to study entrepreneurship, so I just had to I just had to do it. Yeah, <laughs> I guess that's probably something you cannot really study. You have exactly. just to do it and learn yeah. on the job. I guess. Yeah, right. I, I'm really not a fan of of like studying entrepreneurship. You it, even if it's just a small side project, it's it's much. In my opinion, it's much. You learn so much more by doing like a Shopify store or something yeah. than than you could learn in a in a two year masters. Yeah. I remember I also always had to argue with my parents because I also only did my bachelor's. And then they always said, now go back to university, <laughs> yeah. do your master's. I said, no, I'm, I'm first going to work on that startup thing. And then uh, three years later, I said, okay, this was my master's. I don't need to go back to university anymore. Exactly. That's how I feel. You also met your co-founder, Alain Aubert, um, already back in high school. So, you know, how did that go about? How did you also find out that you were good business partners to also start the company together afterwards? I think that was just a lucky coincidence. So we knew each other already for five years uh, during all of high school. So I think that helped a lot. Um, but we weren't like super close friends. But then after high school, um, we ended up going on vacation together just randomly. And uh, during that time, I just told him about all my uh, endeavors and, and side projects and business ideas. And I was always complaining because I was not technical that I <laughs> <laughs> that I didn't know how to program, etc. And he said, hey, do you need a technical guy? I'm, I'm in. And then we shook hands in a Chinese restaurant and we're basically married ever since. So so we, we've done all uh, projects uh, together and are still working together. And and that's uh, yeah, I've been I guess very very lucky with him. 
this is again, you know, easy to probably reflect on or to see in, in retrospect, but how did, did it make you feel? How did you win a certain certainty to say, hey, Alain is actually the right co-founder for me? Were there any signs that you looked at or any gut feeling that was triggered or, you know, how do you make such a, an important decision after all? Yeah, so we started, I, I think we, it, it was like, like in the relationship. So we basically started dating. We, we just did like some, some projects together. We just started working together. Like we didn't found a company yet, et cetera. We just, we just uh, worked together mm -hmm. and then we just saw that it was a great fit. Um, we, we complement each other very well. So he's more on the technical side. I'm more on the business side. I'm more uh, overconfident and super optimistic and he's more realistic. So, so we can balance each other out. And I think, uh, yeah, over time, it just became clear that we, we can work together really well. Our communication was always really good. I think that's, that's important. We had our, our uh, difficult times, of course, but, uh, Overall, I think uh, we were just very good partners and we didn't see any reason why we should stop that. So we continued. Yeah. I think a very important thing that you actually did is you, you run small tests, basically. You started with project work, but you also focused on the you know interpersonal relationship. You went on vacation together. I think these things to have a, a common history together is crucial before actually jumping into entrepreneurship and founding a company together. Yeah, and especially because we knew each other from the five years of high school, we were teenagers. So you learn so much when you go together to school and to school yeah. trips, etc. So I think I think we already knew so much about each other, even though we weren't, like I said, we weren't close friends. But I think we had this history and that helped a lot. Because I, if I would imagine to start a relationship with, with a co-founder completely new, completely fresh, you don't know each other. Yeah have no trust, you don't have any history, it can be very difficult. And then yeah. I would definitely recommend to run small tests and to always yeah, ask yourself, is this, is this the real uh, partnership that you could commit for many years? Because it's, it's very similar to a marriage, actually, because right. uh, when you co-found something, you, you can't get rid of the other person easily. Yeah. So that's... Uh, it will eventually yeah. break the company, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. And what's also, it's always a good reminder for me is uh, the quote that Howard Mark said on the Tim Ferriss podcast is a great team has shared values, but complementary skill sets. So this really seems to be the setup that you chose here. Did you ever talk about the values that you want to hold up high that are important to you? Or was that more a, a natural feeling, a subconscious thing in, in your team setup? No, we, I think it started organically, but then of course we, we talked about the values. We, we read books like delivering happiness and we, uh, overdid our whole, uh, yeah, value system and, and we talked a lot about it. So we had, for example, one of our core values is that mistakes are good. We want to basically maximize the mistakes because if you don't make any mistakes, then you don't go fast enough or you don't risk enough. So we always had a very open um, mistake culture mm -hmm. uh, also with ourselves and also with our employees. And I think, uh, yeah, that's, that was, that was one key piece of, of our, of our value system. Fantastic. So let's go back to the early days of, of Trigami. What was the specific problem that you actually solved with that company? So our idea, so, so I started my blog in, in 2006 and uh, I, I just saw what power a personal blog can have. So uh, uh, the professional uh, job network in Germany, Xing, was before called OpenBC. 
And I was the blogger that luckily broke the news that they will change the name to Xing. And I had my 15 minutes of fame in the blogosphere. Everybody talked nice. about it. Yeah. And I just saw what power blogs can have. Yeah. And I just somehow felt we wanted to build something based on, 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 on this power. So our idea was to create a network of bloggers and then to allow companies to purchase sponsored posts and product reviews from those bloggers mm -hmm. and um, in a very native and, and organic uh, format. So for companies, this was a new way to spread the word about uh, products. And of course, for bloggers, it was a new way to, to monetize your, your influence. And yeah, in the end, we built a network of 10,000 uh, bloggers in the German-speaking uh, uh, part of Europe and ran campaigns that included hundreds of blogs per campaign, uh, all made possible through our specialized platform that we built for this purpose. So we wanted to make the process efficient and, and to yeah, uh, basically allow companies to really take advantage of this new form of, of marketing. Awesome. And, you know, to build such a company with 10,000 of, of uh, campaigns and everything, you also have to face some obstacles, I can imagine, some challenges that you have to overcome. So the f very first thing that you actually had to do is winning your first paying customers, your first clients. How did you tackle that? Yeah, I think we were lucky because, um, yeah, I I've already done many projects and, and started my first company many years ago. So I already had my personal network. So those first customers actually came from my personal network. So I just called up some friends and our first customers were actually Exila, the, the sharing uh, marketplace and also Black Sox. And uh, yeah, and then actually those campaigns went viral in the Sonntagszeitung um, immediately was very critically received because uh, people felt that uh, people were bribing bloggers to write positive things. It was very polarizing. So from the first campaign, we were like discussed very controversially. Mm -hmm. And actually that helped us then to, to win the next clients. So we started this, this snowball from, from the first campaign. So people were talking about you, the press was writing about you. That was probably the best advertising you could have asked for. That was the best advertising. And not only that, we took our ethical responsibility very seriously. So, so the sponsored posts, like is common today, were always, um, uh, there was always a disclaimer that this was a sponsored post. Yeah. And, and what we did, we, we called it a Trigami review or Trigami ad, and we linked it back to our website. So actually nice. we had this viral component in there. So every campaign was um, automatically advertising for our own company. And that's actually how we built, how we built the snowball in, in, in addition, of course, to the, to the polarizing uh, topic of, of uh, paying bloggers to, to write something about you. I love that because the viral marketing loop, that's probably the, the best and most powerful marketing strategy that you can kick off, but also the most difficult one, I guess. Yes, and, and it also has, has to fit the product, right? So you can't right. do it with, with each product. You can do it with Hotmail where they had it in the signature and stuff like that. So we were lucky that, it's, that, that we could do it like that. So we had the ethical part covered and we also had the virality for us covered. Yeah, so actually that, that, was, our, that was our engine. Without that, I think we, we wouldn't have gone anywhere. So, so that uh, generated like five leads per day for our sales team wow. and... The blogger side was actually very easy because, yeah, uh, yeah, because they could make money with us. Yeah. So uh, that was easy to to convince. So and, and and the other thing was also that, to the best of my knowledge, we were really the first ones that that uh, 
really applied this format in, in German-speaking Europe. So, mm -hmm. so we had this, this novelty effect where it was just a new way of, of, of marketing. And some companies, the early adopters, were always looking for new things. Right. So that was our, our initial market. Yeah, and, and talking about the German-speaking market, so you also very soon realized, hey, Switzerland, it's a great starting point, but probably not the market we want to be in in the future. It's just too small. So how do you go about that internationalization? Because once you realize that, you have to act, right? Yes, and I think, again, we were very lucky because our um, projects in the past, we always saw like the German-speaking part of Europe, the Dach uh, region, as one. So we always tackled that for all our projects. So it was very natural for us to also take on German clients and, and, and bloggers from Germany. So, but you're right, the market, especially for such a early, um, yeah, such an early product with a, with a non-proven market, Switzerland was just too small. Uh, not enough bloggers, not enough reach. And, and I think on the client side that there was, of course, enough budget, but especially there was not enough reach on the, on the blogger side. So then we quickly um, uh, pivoted to, to Germany and Germany became our number one market. And then I think we, we made the right choice that we focused and concentrated on Germany because I'm a big believer in, in concentration and focus. So we sticked to Germany and didn't expand to, to other countries, um, which I believe uh, yeah, was, was the right decision for, for us to uh, just try to tackle Germany. And uh, I also subscribe to Peter Thiel's uh, philosophy of just choosing a very defined, very specific market and try to be a monopolist in, in this specific market and not try to just tackle the world and, and, and very lightly. So yeah, that's what we did subconsciously. So talking about that niche that you focus on, of course, blogs probably were a niche back then in 2006, but did you have any additional criteria where you say, we only focus on blogs in, in these and these industries or these and these topics? Did you have any additional niche beyond the, the blogs as a, as a medium? We categorized the blogs, of course, right. and uh, certain clusters, I think, emerged. So of course it was uh, very tech heavy or just innovation heavy. So we, our clients uh, were usually launching new products because that's exciting for, for both sides. So it, it wasn't very, um, yeah, it wasn't a strategy for us to, to really uh, narrow it down further. But I think it just emerged um, on the blogger side where we had enough bloggers. Then we focused on the, on the sales side, on, on what customers or what clients could be a potential fit for the bloggers that right. we have. So, so we worked yeah, together with, with a lot of uh, big brands and also small innovative uh, yeah, companies that, that launched uh, cool services and products. And, and that ended up to, to be our, our main business. Makes sense. In Switzerland, you mentioned you had your personal network. You were also able to generate some PR and, of course, the viral growth loop, so to speak. How do you tackle that in Germany? Of course, the virality probably also worked there, but how do you go about the PR and the personal network? Because I guess that was probably inexistent when you entered the German market. No, actually, for, from the first campaign, it's uh, the the viral, yeah, basically polarity was in Switzerland and Germany, both in Switzerland and okay. Germany. So uh, the German bloggers were were watching what what yeah. we were doing in Switzerland and were. Yeah, criticizing us or loving us for it or, or whatever, just talking about, yeah. about us. And I think that's actually really a deep lesson here that if you have a startup and 
people are not talking about you, that's actually the worst thing that can happen. Right. And even if people are talking about you and it's negative, it's much better than if they just don't care. Yeah. So at least they cared about us. And of course, we had a lot of negative, uh, negative press and negative uh, comments. Yeah, because it was it was controversial, and uh, so so actually it was it was very natural and and. Yeah, very soon we had many more bloggers from from Germany and many more customers from Germany, so we we didn't have to like push it uh, push it ourselves. Right. When you actually get that negative press, how do you deal with that also on a personal level? Because it can also be very demotivating for some people that just say, "Hey, I just I can't take it anymore." You know, you you mentioned your high ethical standards, so I just wonder how did you respond, if at all, to these negative press articles, and how did you also manage that on a personal level? Yeah, so so I I read some books about this, and it it was actually I did the opposite. So no matter which article or which blog wrote about us, I was the first one to be there to comment to yeah. actually stir it up. So I was always there. And I think people when they criticize someone they never expect or back in the day, they didn't expect that like the yeah. founder would show up and, and like talk to them, right? They were like baffled. And I did that like, yeah, maniacally, I, I did it all day, or in, in the early days. So I really stirred it up. And then and they, they yeah, started to take us seriously. They they saw, hey, he's he's really, uh, yeah, he has a point. And I defended our model, and and I defended the weak points and the positives. And I think that helped a lot that that we were present and that we jumped into it. And I think that's also a good model for like, uh, yeah, crisis moments. If like a company has a shitstorm or or something, mm -hmm. the the worst thing that you can do is to just wait it out and yes. just uh, put it under the rug and and hope that it will go away because it. Sometimes it goes away, but most of the time it doesn't. And the best thing is actually to really, yeah, go there and and just be part of the conversation, even if you don't agree, even if you don't find a common a common spot in the end. I think it's just important that you show respect to the people that write about you and that they see that that you are a real person and and that you also have a have your own opinion, etc. So I think that helped a lot and. Uh, and and that stirred uh, stirred the fire more. <laughs> so in that regard, you you are just being authentic to a certain degree. And I think I yeah. think people can really smell and feel the difference in that regard. Yeah, I think so. And and yeah, it was our first real company, and we really put our heart and soul into it. And I think people people felt that. And I think that was our secret superpower that we were just really honest about it. And we also were honest when we screwed up. Then we said, hey, sorry, we really made a mistake here, etc. So we were just honest on the on the positive and also on the negative side. And I think that helped. Maybe maybe I did it sometimes too much because you also need to need to learn <laughs> where the boundaries are. So so yeah, it was a, a learning process. But I think that's that helped us that helped us a lot. And then a few years later, in 2011, you actually entered an, another learning process because you decided to merge with eBuzzing, which then in 2014 actually merged with, I'm, I'm not sure how to pronounce it correctly, Teats or Tets? Teats. Teats. Yeah. Uh, to create a global video ad group. So first of all, how and why did you actually decide to merge? Because that's a big step to take with your company. Yeah, it's a big, big step. And at that point, we were basically building up this company for five years. And I think the honest answer really is that we were struggling. 
Um, as I said, it was a new market. We grew the business to 1 million Swiss francs in revenue and um, break even in, in the last year. But we had really big troubles to grow beyond that. And we felt it. And, and when eBuzzing approached us, um, we were very open to just um, yeah find a deal with them because we saw how much better they actually were at sales and at management. And uh, those two parts were actually our weak spots. We, we fixed a lot of it, but we just saw how much better they were at it. And what really convinced us was their strategy. So they wanted to actually build a group of all similar companies in all of Europe and create one big entity. And the group CEO, uh, Pierre Chapas, um, has actually already implemented this strategy in his previous company, Calcu, and he was able to sell this company to Yahoo in the in the first dot-com boom. So it was very credible to us that if he's done it before, that that he would uh, likely succeed again. So so yeah, we decided to to talk to them and and find a deal, and and we found it. Nice. Who who made the first approach? Did they approach you, or did you get in touch with them, or how did that work? Yeah, actually, they approached us because they had this strategy and they just wanted to to build this uh, one yeah. big entity. But uh, yeah, it was a little bit of a difficult process because they approached us through LinkedIn in 2011. I wasn't using LinkedIn, <laughs> so I didn't saw the message for like six months. And then they approached again and we turned them down first because we we thought we could we could do it ourselves. Yeah, but then we we started talking again. Uh, it took a, a few months, and then we saw very very fast that it was really a, a good fit. And then and then it actually went really fast. I think uh, that the deal was done in like two months. So you mentioned the weak spots. Um, there you also have to be brutally honest to yourself, right? Um, how do you reach such a conclusion to then say, "Hey, I sort of leave my own baby and merge it with someone else, my own company." That's a very very tough decision to make. So how do you actually reach that conclusion and also don't, you know, don't get too over emotional to make the wrong call? Yeah, I think again for us, it, we were a little bit burned out at this point. Yep. It was five years. We were struggling, really just trying to make ends meet. So we didn't reach like this stable, steady state where we uh, yeah, just had a really successful company that, that was profitable. Uh, so, so that was weighing us down, and and I think uh, in the end, uh, if I'm honest, uh, we, we were looking also for a way out to to uh, yeah just have a little bit uh, calmer calmer lives. So it was it was the right approach at the right time. But of course, it also made sense. So if if the strategy from their side didn't make any sense, we would yeah. we would have have uh, continued on on our own. But it it really made sense. The management team, as I said, was really was really good. We really liked them. And I think that was, in the end, the, the convincing the convincing factor for us. Got it. And how do you actually structure such a deal that you also have a successful outcome in the end? Because that can be super tricky. Yeah, it, it really helped that first they really wanted to make a lot of deals and then built this, built this big group. And also they were experienced in, in mergers. Uh, we weren't. And they uh, proposed a very straightforward deal. So we simply compared the revenues of both companies, and that's how the combined company basically was ended was was split up. So mm -hmm. I I really can't think of a simpler way to do a merger. So there was no like discounted cash flow analysis, no like complicated valuation models or discussions. It was just show us our last quarter or la last year and yeah. we compare it. We were similar businesses that that helps, of course. 
and then we we just did it and it was it was super super straightforward super fast so we we appreciated that because if it was complicated and with yeah too many lawyers too many valuations it's yeah. it can it can kill a deal that can kill also the whole spirit exactly. of yeah we yes. want to do business exactly. together exactly yeah so so i i really have to give them credits they really i felt they wanted to do a deal and they were like no bullshit let's just do it professional they were of course lawyers etc involved but right. it was all very straightforward and all outcome oriented and and yeah it we, we couldn't be more more happy about about such a process nice and then the deal was actually that you would just get shares of the new joint company no cash uh, payout or anything of that sort right was a little bit of, of cash, just a small percentage to, to just uh, have something, but the vast majority was was uh, was shares in the combined company. Got it. And then, you know, after you do such a merger, the big thing really is the integration of the different cultures afterwards. So how did you go about that? Because that's a whole other level of a challenge. Yes. And uh, again, uh, now a lot of years later, to, to be honest, I think we underestimated this part. And it was way more challenging than anticipated. And I think if I'm if I'm uh, reading about other mergers or similar deals, I think this is always a very important, uh, very important factor that people underestimate. So yeah, being an independent company and being a subsidiary of a larger construct, of course, are fundamentally different things. And yeah, it it wasn't easy for us because uh, suddenly we had to get approval to to hire new people and. Uh, have management meetings like every week, every month. And it was a completely new experience for us that uh, we had to get used to in the beginning. That makes sense. Do you have any tips, uh, you know, for companies going through something similar that you say, pay special attention to these aspects because they are often undervalued in that regard? Yeah, I think it, it starts at the beginning, whether you want to do the deal or, or not, and, and what your alternatives are. Um, uh, I think if you have a really strong business and you're already profitable and you're growing fast organically and it works really well, then I think I would, then you're in a stronger position and then you can really, then, then I would have to really, yeah, then I recommend to decide really hard whether you want to lose your independence or not. Mm -hmm. But for us, it was like the choice between more suffering or potentially less suffering in a in a in a larger construct yeah. and yeah we we chose the hope of 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 course the the bigger structure and and less suffering so so for us we had no real like alternative to 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 fall back on and uh so for us it it it, it was this decision but yeah, it's 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 not easy, and especially they they did a lot of mergers um, besides our, ourselves, so it was right. like a mixed group of of people, and I think uh, yeah, it always takes time to to integrate that. It's interesting because if you think back at what you said at the beginning, you know, freedom is the most important driver for you. Then independence can be very similar to free freedom here, right? So you had suffering in in your company, you didn't grow as fast as you wish you had. And then basically selling or merging that was basically a step towards more freedom in that regard. Yes and no. In the, in the short term, no, because we were just part of, of a big uh, construct. Sure. And and then, uh, yeah, and, and then uh, actually the, the history is, yeah, that we that we decided to then leave uh, pretty, pretty, uh, yeah, the, the next year af after the merger. So... Uh, then we actually gained gained more freedom, but uh, yeah, I, I would say it it was 
it was certainly less stressful to be part of a big group because you have the financial backing of the big group. So I think that helped a lot. And uh, it life was certainly better after after the merger. And how was, you know, your impact basically as a founder, you can make decisions, you can move fast. Did you feel that there was a lack of something because it was not your own company anymore? Or how was that on an emotional level? We already walked through that a bit, you know, with the merger decision, but then actually working for another company, having a boss eventually, how did that feel? Yeah, especially for me, it was it was quite difficult. I think for for Anna, for for my co-founder, it was easier because he was on the technical side. He was really good. I think our platform was superior to their platform, and that that was also one major part of the value that we brought. So he helped them a lot on the technical side to fix their uh, platform. I think they even nice. merged some parts of it. So so I think for him it was less challenging, but but for me it was it was more challenging because I went from like the founder role to more of a manager role. And um, yeah, I, I had I had real trouble with that because uh, yeah, I, I was just feeling more and more that um, yeah, I, was, I, was, I was learning that uh, on the way that, that I'm really not enjoying managing people and, and managing companies, uh, like the managing part of it. I don't enjoy that too much. I'm, I'm really the, the, the founder who likes to start things. So, so yeah, for, for me, it was, it was difficult because suddenly I was more in the managing role, like having to write reports and, and management meetings and things like that. And yeah, for me, I, I really didn't, didn't enjoy that too much, to be honest. Yeah. So that was also one of the reasons why I then actually left in 2012, you left your operational role, but were there any other reasons why you decided, okay, now it's already time to leave? Yeah, actually, they, they there were. So, so as I said, the, the group I think had completed five or even more, maybe, maybe up to eight uh, similar mergers than than ours. Yeah. We were like I think 100, 150 people in the whole company. But uh, what ended up being the case is that the situation was that almost half of the company was suddenly founders, <laughs> leaders, managers, and it was yeah. just too much, too many cooks, uh, too right. big management meetings. So I think. In a way, it was natural that there needed to be some consolidation at some point. And uh, yeah, it also didn't help uh, that our office was located in Switzerland, even though our market was Germany. And they already started to build up offices in, in Germany, even in case that our deal wouldn't uh, go through. So they they uh, did a double strategy. They they wanted Germany no, no matter no matter what. And we actually then helped them to, to build the German offices. Mm -hmm. But then we felt like that the Swiss office was starting to get a dead weight um, because, yeah, the salaries are much higher in Switzerland and we were not close enough to the market when, when we have offices in Germany. So I, I just felt or, or we felt that it was just a matter of time until the question will be raised. Um, yeah, will we need, do we need the Swiss office anymore? Right. And we just felt that when we wanted to hire people, there was more resistance. So we felt that it was like a death of a thousand paper cuts situation potentially. And, and yeah, after, after a lot of uh, internal discussions with Anna, we just decided instead of potentially suffering for many years and having to downsize the office, we wanted to take this decision into our own hands and just cut it up front because we, we saw it coming, we felt it. And and that was that was actually the, the 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 main decision. I mean, also huge respect for taking that decision proactively because I know that's never easy to to make that happen. It was it was a really hard time for us, uh, but I think for the for the group itself, 
if, if, if I'm taking my investor hat and if I would be an investor or a shareholder in a company with such a structure, with so many offices, so many managers, of course you need to cut like fat right. and you need to cut uh, costs, etc. And I think we were, yeah, just objectively speaking, the, the right candidate to, to do that. And uh, of course, they wanted to keep us. They wanted to find another role for us. But like moving to Germany was never an option for us or starting something completely new within the group also didn't feel right. Yeah. So we struggled with it and just find, found ourselves. Do we want to be a manager in a group of like uh, 20 managers and not really being good at it, not really enjoying it um, while the others are much better than us and are enjoying it? So yeah, then we just said, let's let's. Uh, let's uh let's kill our jobs and 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 move on and and yeah actually i think it was it was also a good decision for the group mm -hmm. because um yeah for the many years of of uh, that that we were gone they saved a lot of money of course they saved a lot of costs a lot of headaches to like uh, yeah uh, fighting with us or discussions and things like that so we just did it proactively it, we felt it was the right time we we felt uh, that our projects, the integration was done, the, the German offices were built. So we felt it was at the, at the right time to, to, to make that difficult decision. So that was the next steps towards more freedom in that regard. But at the same time, it could also have harmed the financial freedom aspect, right? Because if you leave early, you probably also leave some money on the table because you probably have a vesting schedule. So did that have any impact on, on your personal finances by leaving early? Yeah, so actually it it didn't and and uh, yeah we we have to give a lot of uh, respect and and just a lot of uh, yeah just a lot of appreciation to 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 the group uh, to 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 being uh, so generous so yeah theoretically i think we we would have lost something but i think we we would have left anyways it it was the right decision for us but uh yeah, they did it very gracefully, very professionally and, and very goal oriented. So yeah, actually we, we had to close down the whole office. We could give our employees like a good uh, parting, like bonus, etc. So, so it was all done in a very, in a very positive, in a very positive way. That's really astonishing because usually you have like three to five year vesting options and uh, then have to stay around for that long. Otherwise you lose a lot of money. So yeah, that's a really nice setup. Yeah, true. But I think on the other side, when, when you think on the group level, do you really want to have people or old founders just sticking around Absolutely. to just West, like West in peace, et cetera. Yeah. It, I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. Right. That's so, right. so I really respect their like no bullshit attitude to really, I mean, they, they saw it. They weren't happy about it, of course, that that we left because uh, uh, we we were we were valuable um, uh, members of of the management team. But but on the other hand, I think uh, yeah, for for the whole group, it 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 made it it made it made sense in the end, and and I think the cost cutting in the end was I hope worth worth it for them. Yeah, I like that perspective. Before we continue with the show, we would like to introduce you to our new partner, Nuco. Nuco helps founders navigate the paperwork that starting a company involves. From the first consultation all the way to the commercial register, Nuco has helped more than 900 entrepreneurs start their company, and they do so at highly competitive prices. To find out more, visit nuco.ch Swisspreneur. Again, that's nuco.ch Swisspreneur. And now, on with the show. 
And now we also already talked a, a little bit about it, but you basically went from founder to employee and then you dropped out completely. You know, what, what did that do to you on a personal level? Because, you know, working full steam ahead, probably 200% every week to still enough workload and enough stress to then suddenly, now I have a break. Like, what do I do with my life and with my time? What did that do to you on a personal level? How did you feel about leaving? And, you know, what were your thoughts back then after you left? Yeah, so in the beginning, I, I think it was it was just huge relief to to uh, just not have any responsibility anymore. Uh, yeah, it, it still took like six months until we had the office closed and and uh, found a new tenant for the office. So so we were still involved for for like half a year after. But uh, yeah, then I just took a took a break and and was was just able to breathe in for the first time in five years. So so actually, it it was relief. But uh, yeah, then of course the question became, what what do I do? What do I do next? And uh, yeah, and then I I had I had dinner with with my with my friends, the founder of Exila, and they needed help, and I started uh, helping him, and then that's that's what actually became my new my new job. Then I I became then the CEO of of Exila for the next uh, I think four or five years. So uh, yeah, that's that's that was my my next step. Fantastic, and then you actually also got involved in the in the crypto and the Bitcoin space, right? After that, yeah, it was actually um, a spin-off of Exila. So, so Exila was was this uh, sharing economy marketplace where we had our own uh, currency, Exila points, mm -hmm. where people were exchanging uh, DVDs and media and and other things. And then when when the whole crypto boom in 2017 came, um, we thought we were in a in a very good spot. Um, with our history and 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 uh, uh, to to do something in the in the crypto space, and we did a joint venture with with another with another company uh, with Bitcoin Swiss and and a partner uh, to to found uh, Verdex uh, out of out of uh, Bitcoin Swiss and out of Exila. So so it 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 was it was part of the of the Exila pro project for me. But uh, but yeah, it, it suddenly became two two companies at at once. Fantastic. Yeah. So you really continued that entrepreneurial journey. And now looking back, you know, along that journey, you always meet opponents, but also supporters. I would also like to talk about these aspects of, of the entrepreneurial life, basically. Mm -hmm. Let's start first with the opponents. Usually, you know, these can be competitors or also other opponents like market players or internal team members that don't behave the way that they should. So who did you meet as opponent along the way of your entrepreneurial journey? Yeah, I think I, I I really I think I learned that from Paul Graham. Um, he he always says that startups don't die; they basically fade away, or or yeah, basically they they are not killed. Startups are not killed; they basically kill themselves. They commit suicide. It it can be yeah because uh, the the founders split up or just any any sort of internal issues, mm -hmm. and so so I really believe that we were our own worst enemy or opponent. So um, yes, sometimes. Uh, we didn't believe in in the idea anymore and had really trouble like uh, keep keeping going and uh, of course there were competitors and other other challenges but but really deep down i think it, the the make or break moment was do we continue or not because we were like at two or three times really thinking about do we now need to close it down it doesn't uh, it doesn't work etc especially in the early days um, and I think what really made the biggest difference that we just kept going um, because we had no alternative. And uh, 
yeah, in the end, we just felt we wanted to keep going. And I think that was that was the most that was the most important. That was the most important thing. But yeah, we, we read a lot of books that that helped us a lot. Books like Delivering Happiness and, and other other books. And uh, but like, yeah, competitors, I, I, I don't think that that was that was the, the biggest issue. I think people obsess too much about about competitors, especially yeah. startups. And I really believe nowadays it's it's become more common to really be more public about it. So so I actually believe that building something in public is the best kind of marketing that you can do, really documenting your process. Uh, so so uh, I would encourage anyone to to do that because the yeah, as I said, the worst thing for any founder is that nobody knows about you and that nobody cares about you and unfortunately in 80 90 percent of the cases actually this is true so yeah. so I, I think i would i would focus all my energy on on that makes sense you mentioned these tough moments where you were actually faced with the decision do we continue or not what kept you going in these difficult times i think it was this internal compass this steve jobs thing that we don't see the end of the the light at the end of the tunnel, but we just feel that the tunnel continues and that we just want to keep going one step after the other. And we also felt that it was a huge learning experience. Yes, it was difficult, but it was also a huge learning experience. So so we learned so much in, in these five years. So we, we, we just didn't, yeah, we, it, it wasn't obvious that we needed to stop. It, we had we had customers, but not enough. So it was always like in the in the middle, it was not like, yeah, we have no users, nobody's using us, it's clear. So yeah, I, I think it, it was it was lucky, but but also I, I think it's it was our our own character that, that made us that made us going. We just we just didn't we also didn't want to fail. We we didn't want to admit that we would have failed. And right. so so that's I think what's deep down kept us going. Yeah, I think if you do have some traction, but you know, not an awful lot, then it's difficult to face the decision, do I just need to be a bit more patient and just continue and push? Or am I actually riding a dead horse and just prolong the death of my company eventually? So that's a really difficult decision if you are somewhere stuck in between. So usually life is not black and white there. It's usually gray, right? Yeah, exactly. And 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 again, I, I really think that that we had a lot of shortcomings ourselves. I think the, the business idea was good enough, the market was good enough, the customers had money, I mean everybody has has budget, etc. So so the execution was really the, the key for us. Right. And uh, for example, when we faced the problem, I was, for example, in the beginning, I was the only salesperson. And um yeah, I don't enjoy sales too much, but I did it out of necessity. But then when I realized that we needed really to build up a sales team and that really sales was the was the missing part for us, then I just jumped in. I read books, I went to sales seminars and I just learned it. And I think I think that's that's the mindset that you that you need to that you need to have. And and I think, uh, yeah, that was actually the missing part. So it was not that like the business itself was was not viable. Mm -hmm. It was more that our execution was not was not good enough or or we were lacking in some important yeah. parts. There is sometimes I feel that if you fall a bit behind your revenue projections, so you don't meet your expectations there, you can still probably push yourself and continue with a good spirit as long as you said you're learning. So Sometimes you say it's time to learn or to earn. I think as long as you have at least one of those, you can probably keep pushing and move forward with the business. If both are missing, I think you're you're lost. 
Yeah, true, true. And I I think it also would have been fine if we had folded like after the first year. I, I think we would have probably started something else and I think it would have been fine as well. So I, I don't think like perseverance and really pushing through all the suffering is always the right choice. But I think you always need to be honest with yourself and just ask deep down your gut feeling. Do you feel continuing makes sense or not? And somehow we felt it make, made sense and it, it was right in the end. Yeah. Did you ever regret making the merger back in the days? No, I think it was it was the right it was the right decision for us. I, I think we would have continued without the merger. We had new investors lined up, so so we would have received new cash, and we we would have uh, tried to to yeah break that barrier of of one million. And I think we we probably would have would have succeeded at that. But uh, no, I'm I'm really happy with the with the merger. I think it it made sense to to build such a group, yeah. and. Uh, yeah, that's that's actually what's what happened. So you mentioned the investors, usually strong supporters along the journey. So who are your strongest supporters from the investor side? Yeah, we were super lucky. So through my blogger blogging days, I, I uh, and and through my Xing uh, episodes, I, I I was known in the in the scene. So so we actually had a lot of uh, really great angel investors in the beginning. We had. Uh, uh, Lukas Godowski in in uh, Berlin and uh, yeah other people Peter Niederhauser in Switzerland Peter Schüppach in Switzerland and uh, uh, actually then Red Alpine became our our um, yeah main investor and uh, Peter Niederhauser joined our board and and that really became a, a really really important uh, partner for us because. Yeah, really at times he believed more in us than we believed in ourselves. He really had to coach us and push us through the hard times. And uh, I think that was for us during that time, it, that was a really important partnership. And also during the merger discussion, yeah, they, they helped us a lot. So, so I think without them, it would have been much more, much more difficult. Absolutely. And, you know, after you left the, the company, Teach, uh, you then... Oh, of course, you were not operationally involved anymore, but the story didn't end there because a bit later in 2017, it was then acquired by Altis. So the big strategy seemed to work and uh, the play went well. You were probably not involved that much anymore, but how did it feel, you know, this whole selling process? At least you were still a shareholder. So at one point in time, you got an information, you had to be informed that there was a sale coming. So how, how were you involved in that process? How did it feel? Yeah, so we were not uh, involved operationally, of course, but uh, yeah, as as a shareholder, you always, um, as a shareholder of a private uh, venture-backed company, you always have uh, things to sign, new founding rounds, etc. So we received another one of those letters, and yeah, this time it was it was an acquisition uh, notice, and uh, yeah, basically it was a cash it was a cash offer, yep. so all straightforward and. Uh, yeah, basically from from our side, it was uh, just signing the documents and uh, right. and receiving receiving the cash. That's a nice way <laughs> of uh, doing a deal, I guess. So the company was reported to have sold for two hundred and eighty five million euros, but there were many different small companies, small founders involved. So what did that mean on a personal level? Like, how much money did you make on a personal level? 
Yeah, so it was really a big group. So yeah, I think in the end they merged with I think eight eight different uh, companies, and I think they raised more than thirty million euros of of venture money. So there were I think more than a hundred shareholders on the cap table. Wow. Of course, many much bigger than than we were. So in the end, of course, our percentage was was really tiny, less than one percent. But uh, yeah, still having a tiny percentage of a big pie is is still better than sure. a big percentage of of no pie. So. So yeah. the payday was it above or below one million? Oh, it was above one million. Yeah, very nice. So that was yeah. No, that it, it was significant, but not like uh, extremely sure big big exit. Yeah, but still, also now you know you had the freedom back on the personal level. So now you could also check the the, the finance freedom to a certain degree. Exactly, and I think that was. Yeah, I think that was that was the missing piece because yeah, after 2011, 2012, when we left, basically most of our wealth was was tied up in 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 this in this group. So we had no liquidity up up until then. So uh, yeah, that was that was uh, a major major step for us. So you know, from the outside, this is like huge success. You basically you built your company. You then were also able to to uh, go through an exit and make some money. But then one year later, you actually also faced a, a real existential serious crisis with a burnout, depression, anxiety, and also hopelessness all mixed together, as you, I think, stated in a tweet on your Twitter profile. So that's also something I would like to talk about because you are very open to talk about it. And I think it's a very important topic that doesn't get enough attention. So how did that happen to you? Because from the outside, you always think other people have that. That will never happen to me. So what exactly happened there in 2018? Yeah, so I, I think um, going back, I was I was going through regular periods of, of darkness and challenges uh, for all my uh, adult life. And uh, so, so I had it. I knew it before. I, I had it before. Um, it, it was a recurring thing for me. And that uh, was also during my Trigami days, so so that also didn't make it easier. But in uh, 2018, I actually had the worst one, uh, worst crisis yet, and I, I really broke down. And uh, I I had to stop everything that I was doing. I, I really couldn't pretend anymore. And I I think really deep deep down, I think I didn't want to be an entrepreneur anymore. And and that created really a conflict in my head because I think I didn't want to admit that because I was, um, yeah, uh, yeah, my self-image was was basically being an entrepreneur. And, and I think this internal conflict of like not wanting to be it anymore, but then suddenly being in a situation of running two companies at once and, and building a startup. Um, I just really didn't want to didn't want to do that, but somehow ended up in that situation through my own stupidity. And yeah, that's that I think was the was the was the root cause of, of this crisis. Wow. And when did you actually notice the first symptoms? How did they feel? Yeah, so I was running Exila and then in, in summer of 2017, um, uh, we, we started to look into the crypto market. And then in, in, in fall 2017, we, we started this uh, this joint venture. And it, it was really a situation where we were attracted to the crypto market. But um, yeah, in the end, I didn't want to build the project, but um, the others didn't want either, and they somehow convinced me that that I was the best. Uh, I was the best option, and I was not strong enough to actually say no. And and I think that was really my own mistake. And then what what happened is, yeah, that suddenly you run two companies in parallel. Crypto market was super hot, yeah. super stressful, way more stressful than I imagined. 
And yeah, I developed uh, severe insomnia. So I was waking up at 4 a.m., super tired, couldn't sleep anymore. I was super irritated all the time, super stressed out. I developed heart palpitations and also panic attacks. I felt just totally miserable and trapped in my own decisions. I, I didn't know how to how to exit that that situation. So uh, yeah, it was it was quite quite a scary moment. That sounds terrible. Yeah, it was. It it was, and uh, yeah, it's it it really was in the in the middle of building building a startup, and yeah, I I really basically ignored ignored it. So uh, because when you're building a startup, you have no time, or yeah, you you just don't give yourself time to think about anything else. You just right. solve one one problem after after the other. So uh, yeah, that certainly didn't didn't help. Yeah. And you said you've ignored the first symptoms, the first feelings that came up. What did you do afterwards? Because that's, you know, somehow you have to to get yourself back together to to try to get out of that as fast as possible. What really helped you to to get out of it? Yeah, so during that time I think I, I knew I was I was over my limit and but I just didn't know what to do. And I think my strategy was to just to hope that it would get better. Um, after the startup was built, or yeah, just in the future, but of course it didn't. It it uh, actually get got worse. So uh, yeah, in, in the end, um, it it built up and it built up to such a degree that I was really forced from one day to another to to call in and to just say, hey, I'm sick. I I really can't do it anymore. I need really I, I need to get out. I'm I, I'm dying uh, otherwise, and. Uh, yeah, so 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 that 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 was one part, and and then I was super grateful and and super lucky, yeah, that that my team really understood and they, yeah, understood that it was an emergency and they supported me uh, from from the first minute. So so I was basically able to leave from one day to another, which which mm -hmm. is uh, uh, yeah, which I'm very grateful for. So uh, yeah, that that was uh, that that was that. But then, in in the end, what what really helped me was, I think, to to just uh, yeah, just I just really needed a, a big break, and 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 I just uh, needed to restructure. I think my my whole life. For how long did you take a break then? So it actually took six to nine months to to really get back on on my feet. So it was it was a severe severe crisis, and uh, during that time, I I traveled a lot. So. Uh, when traveling for 10 weeks during that six to nine month period. I also tried therapy, but yeah, I, I tried several therapists, but it, it really didn't didn't help me at all. Um, and what actually helped me in the end was I discovered uh, Stoic philosophy and uh, I heard it in Silicon Valley. It's, 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 a, it's a huge trend, but I always thought what's Stoic, like 2000 year old, like, uh, weird Roman or, or Greek people. What what can they potentially uh, yeah, help me? But yeah, I was really surprised, and and I read the the two books, uh, The Art of the Good Life by Rolf Dobelli, and then also A Guide to the Good Life by William Irvine. Uh, that are just uh, the first one is a re really easy introduction to to the whole philosophy, and the second one uh, goes a little bit deeper. And and it just spoke to me, and and somehow on a on a, on a deep level, I think I'm a I'm a I think I'm a book person, so 
during my startup times, I did the same with the sales. I did the same with the culture, with yeah. delivering happiness. So I think whenever like my suffering is, is big enough or whenever I'm really motivated to, to solve a problem, I think the best way for me is to just go on Amazon uh, and, and pick the best books in, in this topic and, and work myself through it. So that's, that's what I did. And that's what, what actually got me, got me out of it. You also said before that the underlying cause was that you were still an entrepreneur running two companies at the same time, but actually didn't really want to be an entrepreneur anymore. Did that change over time or was that always there from the beginning? So also when you actually founded Trigami, you also didn't really want to be an entrepreneur. No, I think I, I, I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I didn't want to be a manager. I think that that was that was uh, I think what what it came came down to, and yeah. Then once once I did Trigami, I'm, I'm I think I, I would do Trigami again, and and Exila was also fine. But I certainly shouldn't have started another another startup when I was already unsure about the whole thing. So I think Exila was fine. We had a great team. It it was a good work life balance. But but then uh, the other project was really uh, yeah over the top. It required yeah. all my energy. It it was it was a huge monster, and uh, I think that that was a that was the problem. And yeah, I think for for me really this this uh, if if there is a difference between the idea of of how your life um, how you want your life to be and how it actually is, and if that like difference is too big and you feel it doesn't close you feel it gets wider or, or stays wide yeah. then i think yeah that creates a really bad conflict in your in your mind and i think that conflict really uh that was i think the, the underlying cause of it that's that uh i really wanted to change something and suddenly through my own decisions found myself self in the worse position than i w was before yeah. so i was also frustrated with myself and disappointed in myself and all of that mixed together so uh yeah that, that was that was the situation I know there's no magic pill or magic bullet, but what would you actually recommend to keep burnout at bay to avoid these situations and also probably take the early alarm signs uh, seriously? What would you recommend to, to anyone going through something similar or to avoid such a thing? Yeah, I think the, the underlying thing, and I think a lot of people have this, is, is shame. Um, I, I was just feeling ashamed to to admit that I was struggling, that I was having uh, trouble, that I potentially couldn't do it anymore. I was I was ashamed, and that what that's what actually kept me, yeah, hiding it and and kept me going. Mm -hmm. I was basically pretending that all was fine, but it wasn't. So I think the most important thing, really, and that's what I learned out of it, is to really be totally brutally honest with yourself first and foremost, because if you yeah, you're the one that creates the conflict. I mean, if I would have said no, it would have been much better. If I were more honest to myself and to others, it would have been much better. So I really have to also take take the blame for, for myself and try to learn from it myself. So really be honest with yourself and also have the difficult conversations early on. It's also similar like in relationships or in, in co-founder relationships always have the difficult conversations early on because yeah. if you wait, it gets always multiple times worse. So um, yeah, if things don't work for you, you really need to face them and, and not uh, hope that it will get better or put them under the rug. Um, because if you don't, then they will force that they will basically um, yeah force you to face them. So either you face them upfront or they will force you to do it. Um, that's, 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 that's my learning from it. 
and yeah i also yeah wrote wrote a short handbook uh, on on this topic um because it was such an important uh, episode for me uh, it's on the kindle store uh, that summarizes all the things that that i have uh, yeah that have helped me and all the tools that i found on the way i i basically wrote it for myself but then felt many other people suffer as well so i might as well uh, share it so uh yeah if if anyone's uh, suffering or interested in this topic how i dealt with it i i, I would recommend to to check that out i i also highly recommend it. it's like really short no bullshit on point advice that's uh, always something i really appreciate one thing you mentioned is be brutally honest with yourself is there any practice you know like journaling or anything of that sort that helps you to get there or what sort of habits did you practice to to improve that yeah i think so <laughs> I, I always felt that I needed a life philosophy in 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 my life. I, I always felt this urge of of like having an operating system because I feel that like having the the basic operating system that we learn from our society, from our parents, from from school. Um, if you're not super lucky with 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 all of that, um, is is not optimal. So I tried meditation for a long time. I tried uh, Buddhist meditation for a long time. I did it very seriously during also during my Trigami days. But I always felt a disconnect. I always felt it wasn't really compatible with my with my uh, modern, like Western entrepreneurial life. Mm -hmm. So then, I I really yeah. What what really helped me was was the Stoic philosophy because it was just much more, it was just much more compatible with with such a modern life, because the the most. Uh, yeah, uh, the most popular or, or the most well-known Stoics were uh, Marcus Aurelius, for example. He was the the uh, yeah the the most powerful man on earth, the the emperor of Rome. And Seneca was another one. He was a politician and a, a wealthy investment banker. So, so it just spoke to me. It it was it was much more compatible. And one practice, um, yeah, they they have a lot of practices, but but one practice is to to reflect a lot. So so the the tool of self reflection has become really important for me. I do journaling. Um, um, I do it guided uh, in a guided way. So I ask myself a lot of questions. Um, I ask myself questions like, uh, "What is really, what is really truly important right now in my life?" I always try to like focus on what's cutting to the to the chase of it, mm -hmm. or or asking yourself, "Yeah, if today were the last day of your life, would you want to do uh, what you're about to do today?" The Steve Jobs question and and things like that. Uh, these really help me, and and um, yeah, I think in the end it also needs it, you also need a lot of courage to to really be be honest with yourself because I think a lot of people they uh, they are actors in in their own life they they act a role they they uh, wanting to be a thing but not really and I think it's uh, it's it's completely human to do that I, I've done it as well and uh, and self reflection is one tool to 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 tackle that. And, and also here in Switzerland, including myself, we also have this urge to please others and to avoid conflict. And I think if you do that for too long, it can then eventually also lead to severe, much more worse problems that actually face you, whether you want it or not. Yes. And I think, um, yeah, being able to really uh, to have a, a good conflict uh, is, is also important and communication is really important. And what helped me there was reading uh, Marshall Rosenberg, uh, Nonviolent Communication. It helps in relationships, it helps in all sorts of, of, of uh, human relationships, and it's just a framework of how to 
express your own like desires and your own needs and your own disappointments, your own problems. And I think, yeah, I, I, I would have wished to learn that in school instead of just memorizing stupid things. But yeah, agree. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, but then the, the question remains, can you actually build a startup without burning out? Without burning out, I think, yes, that's that's certainly possible. But without like struggle and challenges and suffering, I think you need to be very lucky. I think there are such stories, but I think most startups you face, it's just hard. You really need to give it your all, your heart, your soul, blood, sweat and tears. And I think um, it's, it's super difficult without it. And I think... Uh, yeah, Ben Horowitz uh, had had this has this book, uh, The Hard Things About Hard Things, I think, or, or something like that. And in there, he talks about the the struggle, and I think uh, the struggle is is really something that that most entrepreneurs feel. Um, it, it's it's just this feeling of yeah, will I survive? And whoa, what did I? Yeah, what what have I gotten myself into? And all of these hard feelings. I think that's that's completely normal. So now we talked about your impressive entrepreneurial journey, also the, the challenging personal uh, life parts, which are also part of the story. Now we, of course, also wonder, you know, after starting your own YouTube channel, getting liked tweets by Elon Musk, what is next for you as a person? Like, what do you have in store? Do you have any, any big plans or what do you want to work on and tackle next? Yeah, honestly, I, I think I, I don't know. Um, I, I think I have decided and and... I've done that for all my life. And I think that's my secret superpower to always listen to my intuition and to no matter what the consequences are, I try to listen to my intuition. That's how I started my first business. And that's how I left uh, yeah, e-buzzing and things like that. I think that was really important for me. So I, I think I want to keep doing that and I'm doing that step by step. And what I really love, I love to learn. I love to teach. I love to share what I learn. So, so that's what I'm doing on the on the content uh, creation side. And and yeah, I, like like Steve Jobs said, I I really trust that the dots will somehow connect in the future, and and that it will make sense when I'm looking backwards. But uh, yeah, what's what's really truly I think the 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 most important metric for me right now is my life is so much calmer right now. I'm so much happier right now. Um, and and I think that's uh, as as long as I can say that I think I'm on the right path. Absolutely, Remo. As a last question, we always want to hear what resources people can share with our audience. You already mentioned a few very good books. Is there anything else that comes to mind? Any resources like books, blogs, podcasts uh, that you can recommend to our listeners? Yeah. I Actually, on, on my website, I think uh, remo.org slash books, I, I have all my uh, a huge list of all my books that I've ever read and, and my comments. And in there, I have my, I think, 25 most important books that I try to uh, reread uh, every year or every two years. So I think that would certainly be a, a good resource if you're um, uh, interested in similar topics than, than I am. And one of the recent books that, that have really changed uh, me completely, uh, I, I've done a deep dive last year into the subconscious mind. And that was a book called Psycho-Cybernetics by uh, Dr. Maltz, uh, Maxwell Maltz. And it, it uh, speaks about in a very practical way about how to unlock the power of the subconscious mind. Because uh, yeah, 95% of the time we are running on autopilot. We are uh, defined by our habits and heuristics and, and thoughts. And I think um, um, yeah, a lot of 
highly successful people, be it uh, yeah, sports, uh, professional sports, sports people, etc. They they make use of their subconscious mind, um, either intuitively or or um, uh, consciously. And I think uh, the more you can learn about that topic, I think uh, yeah, can be very beneficial. And I also believe that this could be a key to solve the mental health uh, challenge, because I I believe that a lot of the mental health problems that we currently have in our society are just treated on the symptom level just with like medication or mm -hmm. with 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 things like that but don't go really deep to the source and the source very often is fear is is uh yeah just some deep deep emotional uh, states that that we have um um and and i think uh, yeah the more we can learn about those deeper states i think the, the better and yeah I, i started to applying this book and it's it's really uh it really enriched my life so i can I can recommend that uh, if, if someone's interested. Wonderful. And I also highly recommend your personal blog, your YouTube channel, and especially also your newsletter. I Every week when you send it out, I, I really look forward to it because it's such a short but concise email with great links. And I always get inspiration from it and then click on it and discover something new. It's, it's wonderful. Thank so you. kudos for the great work there. <laughs> Thank you so much. And yeah, that's a wrap for the first episode, Remo. Thank you so much for the open and honest discussion. Uh, it was a real pleasure having you here today. And we are looking forward to the second episode with you where we talk about personal finance tips. It was my pleasure, Silvan. Keep doing what you're doing. That's great. Thank you so much. See you in the second episode. This episode was brought to you by Swisspreneur's main partner, Clara Business the digital all-in-one solution for small businesses. Managing internal processes manually and on paper wastes an incredible amount of time. That's why Clara digitizes everything, allowing you to focus on what really matters, your core business. Go to clara.ch to find out how your business administration can be simpler, faster, and more efficient. Again, that's clara.ch.